Good morning. Let me offer you my welcome. Thanks for being here. There may be different reasons you're here, but I'm just so glad that you are here. Uh, maybe you've come for a different reason. Maybe you're here every week. Maybe you've come because you've come to honor your granddad or your brother. Um, maybe you're, you're here because it's, you just thought, I'll check what this church thing is about. Whatever it is, you're exceptionally welcome this morning. And what's going to happen now is I'm going to read some verses from the Bible and I'm going to talk about them. And what's just happened, and this may or may not have been your experience, but for much of us, we have in worship engaged with a God who is real. We have connected with and experienced God's love and God's truth. And sometimes on a Sunday morning, we can come to this point in the meeting. And it's almost like we can switch our spirit off and switch our heads on. But I just feel to encourage us this morning, this is a very spiritual act as we come to the Word of God, but it's also a very relational act. You see, Jesus at the start of John's Gospel is called the Word of God, and we call this the Word of God. This isn't Jesus, but God meets us as we read, as we study, and as we hear the Bible preached. And I have absolutely no confidence in my ability to preach this morning. To be able to communicate in some way God, but I have every confidence in the word of God this morning. So my encouragement is this. Don't switch off your spirit. Don't change mode. Don't go into a different gear. We are still worshiping. We are still glorifying God. We are still meeting with him. And my prayer this morning is, as I speak, that God would meet with you and change you. My prayer this morning is, as I speak, God would meet with me and change me. Because this is the powerful word of God. So we're going to base ourselves in John 15 this morning. And we're going to hear about Jesus' last I am statement. He makes seven of these for the Gospels. We heard last week about, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And today, we're going to hear a different one. And these, the last I am and this I am is a different I am to what we've heard previously because it's to a different group of people. It's not proclaimed on a hilltop. It's not in the temple. This is in the intimacy of a room with 11 people that he has purposely and specifically chosen. So this revelation is particular to those people. So I want to make sure we get hold of that context and understand that. So I'm going to ask for a little bit of help. I want, if I may, 11 volunteers to come and sit with me on the steps down here to be the 11 disciples. I'm going to be Jesus just come up if it's 11. We, need, we do need 11, though. If there's less than 11 or more than 11, it's not going to actually represent what we're looking at. So let's count. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
I'm missing three, nine. And we've got some, we've got 10. We've got a police officer coming as well. I need one more. It doesn't have to be a child. Oh, thank you, Miriam. Fantastic. This is a bit more, this is a bit more sound and music than it is up a room, isn't it? <laughs> Let's start at the very beginning. Let's start with John 15 instead, shall we? So your job is to listen very carefully to what I'm saying, because you're actually with Jesus. So you're the disciples. And this moment here, right, is really important. Because this isn't a pep talk. This is not like the start of a football match, where you need to know the right things to play the game. And then maybe you'll win or maybe you won't. What's going to happen? You don't know this. What's going to happen is that Jesus is going to go away. Jesus is going to die. So he's passing on really important instructions for their survival as disciples and apostles. These are the words that we're about to read and hear. And they're words for us as well, because we're his disciples. These are important for our survival. It's not, we're not playing a game, are we? It's not a game of football. And this is what Jesus said. I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this that my joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this than he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. You guys have listened so well. Thank you very much for helping all these guys here understand the context of this passage, what was really happening. So if you want to go and grab your seats and carry on doing that amazing listening, it would be fantastic. If you're going to applause, let's do it properly. Come on. That wasn't a gimmick. That's context. 
It helps us understand the importance of these words and take them on board. Jesus is saying this. He said it six times. Remain in me. He says two times, remain in my love. He's trying to convey something to them. He really wants them to get hold of something. And today, we're going to try and get hold of those things. And the first thing we need to understand is this. I've got three points. I've got three, one, two, three. Three points and a fourth one to throw in as well. And the three points have the words true in them. I'm just looking at lots of people taking notes. It's going to help you, isn't it? So the true vine, true friendship. Oh, true love second. True vine, true love, true friendship. There you go. Note takers, happy. Let's get on with it. Right. The true vine. We're going to have a picture come up in a second. Jesus says, I'm the vine. You are the branches. We've got to understand here, this is not just a random image he's come up with. This is loaded with information and history for the people that are sitting around listening. For you and I, it may not have that much importance apart from, oh, it's a vine. It produces grapes. That's a really interesting image. Thanks, Jesus. Let's move on. For them, it's totally different. You see, the vine or the vineyard was an Old Testament picture of the people of God. We see that in Isaiah 5. We see it in Psalm 80 as well. Specifically in verse 15 in Psalm 80, it says this, Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. The psalmist has seen this change where the vineyard of God hasn't produced the fruit that was planned for it, that a new vine would be planted called the sun. The sun would be planted. You see, Jesus is taking on this new role. He says, I am the true vine. No longer look to the people of Israel as the authentic people. Look to me as the true vine. I am the true vine. I am the true Israel. And actually, he's saying something about the temple, which we heard about earlier on. To say, to say remain in me for an Israelite, for a Jew, would have been involved the temple. To be near the presence of God, as Mark said at the psalm at the start, would have meant being in the temple courts, but there were so many barriers, so many things preventing us from actually being in the presence of God, dwelling with him, remaining with him, staying with God. How can we do that? Well, I'm going to get as close as possible to the temple. I'll remain in the temple as much as I can. Jesus is totally and utterly redefining what it means to follow God. Remain in me. I am the true vine. This is a paradigm shift for the disciples. Why change? Because God wants fruit. Israel didn't produce the fruit that God wanted. The true vine will produce the fruit that God wants. So we have a picture here. Oh, picture here. Which side is it going to appear? It takes five seconds because there's a glitch. There we go, wrong side. There we go, a picture of the vine and the branches. So the vine's at the bottom, it's the brown thing. And the branches are sprouting up. And the fruit comes off that. So not many of us will have seen vines and branches. So I wanted us to get a picture of this because Jesus is using this on purpose to make a very particular point. You see those branches, 
If I take away that vine, what happens to those branches? They disappear. They fall to the ground and they die. The branches are utterly reliant upon the vine. I am the true vine. You are the branches. Remain in me. Now, you may be able to relate to this next story as a parent or as a child or both, but have you ever been in a supermarket with a... <laughs> Do you want to hear the question today? Yeah, Lily's been in a supermarket. Ever been in a supermarket? I need to finish my sentence quicker. Ever been in a supermarket and parent and small child have become separated? Now, initially... Small child might feel a level of confidence and excitement. I'm out on my own in the supermarket. Or alternatively, and this will be the ultimate feeling that the toddler will experience. There's mummy! Where's daddy? I can't find them. It's quite an impressive acting ability I've realized I now have as a toddler. Why the reaction? You see, the toddler is utterly reliant upon their parents. They can't be independent. They're two. They might still be in nappies. Have you ever tried to change your own nappy? No, I don't think you have. And if you did, it probably wasn't successful. Why? Because that's why you have parents. Branches have vines. We should be like those toddlers utterly reliant upon our parents. But I wonder, let me just suggest something to you. Perhaps we're like the cocky three-year-old who suddenly thinks they can have a bit of independence away from their parents. Suddenly we don't need them as much. But the reality is we do need God. He is the vine. We are the branches Apart from me, you can do nothing, God says. That's what Jesus says to his disciples. Apart from me, you can do some things, a few things, you know, 50% of the things. No, nothing. Unless we are in God, attached to him, we're doing nothing. But we can do everything if we are in the vine. So, what is remaining about? Well, this true vine image tells us this. Remaining is about where we get our life source from. And we perhaps might get that from relationships, from other people, from things we do or from traditions or even from hobbies or skills or achievements or even from religion. But as we've already heard this morning, the only true source, the only true vine, the only true means of salvation, the only true means of producing fruit is Jesus. Only Jesus. He is the true vine. And what does he say in verse 9? As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. We've been told to remain in him. We're told also to remain in his love. Jesus 
has loved us. Let's just dwell on this for a second. As the Father has loved Jesus. How does the Father love Jesus? Jesus is unblemished. Jesus has never put a step wrong. Jesus has never irritated his parents. Jesus has never pushed the boundaries to see how far his parents' patience will last. The Father has loved Jesus. And Jesus loves us as the Father loves us, even though we push the boundaries. Even though we test his grace. Even though we stretch his patience. Even though we're totally undeserving of the love of the Father. Jesus has loved us as the Father has loved us. I've been spending some time in 1 Corinthians 13, which is a whole chapter on the love of God. I'm not going to read it out particularly, but I have been getting slightly disheartened when I've been going through that, thinking, I don't know whether I am that loving, actually. Love is patient, love is kind. Yeah, I am most of the time. Some of the times I'm not. Love does not hold a record of wrongs. Oh, I do a bit of that. And the only way I've been able to read it lately is by doing this. This is the way that God loves me. He's the only one who's able to take that whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 and enact it perfectly and completely in direction of me and you. God loves us in that way. Love is God. God is love. God loves you. Perfectly. Do we really get that? You've been told it possibly hundreds, thousands of times before. We get used to it. God loves me. Stick it on a sticker. God, the God of all time and eternity, who created everything, who is totally perfect, unblemished, never put a foot wrong. He's more awesome and mighty than you and I can ever conceive. He's totally satisfied within himself because he's a Trinitarian God. He has no need to have a relationship with you or me. No, no, no motivation particularly apart from this. He wants to. The love of the Trinity was so great, so big, so huge, so massive, so overflowing that it rolled out into creation. It made you and me. But more than that, it flooded into salvation so that you and I might know God. God loves you unconditionally. And as Dave was praying this morning at the start, stubbornly. As Kim was telling us earlier on, with patience and forbearance and faithfulness. That goes beyond our ability to give that back to him. You see, his love is not like, it's not like a magnet. See, a magnet only attaches itself to something which is metal. That is a love that is conditional. God's love is like blue tack or white tack or a cheaper version of that which doesn't do as good a job. You see, its stickiness is reliant upon itself. See, God's love is reliant upon itself in terms of its effectiveness. It's not reliant upon you. Oh, does God love me? Well, just look at me. Wrong way around. Does God love me? Look at his love. 
Look at his love. His love is amazing and stubborn and obstinate and continuous and powerful and aggressive and sometimes violent to break through barriers in order that you can know this morning, God loves you. He really does. He loves you. But he says this, I, I've loved you. I love you. Remain in my love. Just a second. Surely the act of God loving us is just him pushing his love towards us that, so that we might know it. No, there's something that we need to do. There's an active nature to remaining. It's not just, I'm remaining in God's love. He's doing the hard work. He's doing most of the work. But we need to do something. Jesus says this to his disciples, remain in my love. John repeats this in a slightly different way in his, um, one of his letters. 1 John 4, he says this, verse 16. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Again, there's a choice. There's some activity we need to involve ourselves in to make sure we get our address right. To make sure we're in the right house. To make sure the dwelling we have is God's love and nothing else. Has anyone seen Encanto? I'm disappointed at the percentages there. I'll be honest with you. Well done to those who have, okay? Encanto, the latest Disney movie where this family have magical gifts given to them. So you've got Antonio. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I understand what you're saying. He can speak to animals. And you've got, um, you've got Isabella, Isabella, the golden girl, the beautiful girl who can magic flowers to appear everywhere. They've got gifts and their rooms reflect that and remind them of their gifts and their identity. So Antonio, you walk into his bedroom, there's this enormous jungle with loads of animals running around. You see, that's where he lives. He's not going to forget what his gift is because that's where he lives. You go into Isabella's room, flowers everywhere, enormous bed of flowers, seats of flowers. She's not going to forget what her gift is. Now, I'm not going to spoil the end, but it's, it's not all about the gifts. Okay, it's not all about the gifts. And for us, it's definitely not about the gifts. It's about our identity. It's about fundamentally, who are we? To remain in God's love is to find your home in his love, your comfort and your security in his love. Antonio and Isabella were not going to forget who they were or what their gift was or what their identity was, even though it was related to their gift. Because of where they lived, they woke up in it. What do you wake up in every morning? Now, I've got a friend, okay? And I can smell him before I see him. Okay. In fact, I've got a few friends like this. The one I'm thinking of is a positive thing. Because... 
they spray copious amounts of aftershave on themselves every single morning, possibly multiple times a day. Okay? So, assuming the normal things have taken place, before they would leave the house. You see, this is how I apply aftershave uh, in the morning. I'm done. I am done. That's all I need. I'm mainly because I'm stingy and I want it to last. Okay, that's me. My friend, in fact, I want to demonstrate on someone else. Who wants to come and be demonstrated on? Bless Anne, yeah. Well done, Joe. Joe has identified the smelliest men in the room. Step forward, bless Anne. Thank you, Joe. I mean, we, we, were, we were all thinking it, weren't we? And so this is how my friend Jem, who's online, would apply aftershave in the morning. He doesn't, he doesn't have a butler to do this, just to point out. You might be allergic. Health and safety risk assessment. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, no. Oh, we need to get someone else. <laughs> so he would go. Duh, 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 duh. Right, get ready. Walk. <laughs> and just for. There we go on the back as well. And the back, just the back of the ears. Apparently. That's really important because if someone's talking to you, um, particularly at a nightclub, they can... Oh, no, wrong sort of advice. Sorry. Go on, go on. Now, what you're going to find... Why am I telling you that? We want to live in a place of being overwhelmed by God's love. We want to live in a place where we really get hold of it. And I would suggest this to you, that you're what we call spiritual disciplines, which I hate as a name, but you know what I mean. Reading the Bible, praying, reminding ourselves of God's truth, speaking in tongues, spending time meditating on his word, asking God to fill us with his spirit, celebrating who God is, dancing in your front room with the curtains closed, whatever it is that enables you to engage with and know God's love. If you want to be living there, we don't want to be doing this. It'll help, but that's going to run off a little bit. Bless Anne, I guarantee later on in the day, you go and give his ear a little sniff. If you go near him, let's say, he's going to smell of it way more than I am because he's going to be living in it. He's going to be dwelling in it. He's going to be making sure he's covered in it. So when we talk about spending time with God, maybe it feels like a duty. Maybe it feels like a discipline. But remember the context. This is essential to your survival. This is what true life is really about. If we're not living in God's love, then what are we doing? Well, we're living somewhere else. And I can tell you this, wherever that is, wherever else your home is, it will never, ever do you as much good as God's love. But it's not just a personal spiritual massage to make me feel good about how good God's love is for me. You see, do you see what Jesus said? As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Live in God's love. Remain in my love. And yes, much of that is reminding ourselves and the things we've just talked about. But Jesus gives us an explicit way to do it. Obey my commands. And interestingly, the only command that John repeats in his gospel about how to live our lives is this. Love one another. Now, the other gospels capture lots more. That's not just what Jesus says. But here in this moment, John wants us to understand in terms of remaining in Christ, remaining in the vine, remaining in his love, it's about obedience and it's about loving one another. How do I remain in God's love? I show that love to someone else. It's interesting, isn't it? What do we learn here about what it means to remain? It's about actively placing ourselves in God's love so that his love becomes active in us and allowing us to reach others within and without the church with his love. And what does this remaining lead to? Let's go to verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. What does remaining in the vine mean? What does remaining in Jesus, remaining in his love well, we, we learn this. It's about true friendship, genuine relationship. It is deeply relational. It's not conceptual. We started this morning, or started, I started this message by saying, this is not about information. This is not a cerebral, intellectual activity. This is a spiritual activity. And when we're looking at remaining in Jesus and remaining in his love. Some of that could be reminding ourselves of truth and thinking right things. That's absolutely what it should be. But let's not lose track of this absolute fundamental point. It is deeply relational at a heart and soul level. We don't come to God just to worship him, though we do fundamentally. We come to God to relate to him as a friend. Let's go back to the context again here. These guys here, they've begun to understand that Jesus is God. And then Jesus explicitly says to them something that was becoming apparent. You are my friends. They'd have had two of the people in mind when Jesus made that statement because there are only two of the people in Scripture up to this point who were designated friends of God. Abraham and Moses. There's another paradigm shift taking place in the minds of the disciples. We're followers of Jesus. I think we're followers of God. I think we're followers of the Messiah. But now we're friends? Friends with God? We, 
they are being elevated into the same category as Abraham and Moses. This was a startling statement to them. We get used to it so easily, don't we? Do you want to become friends with Jesus? It's a great way of talking to our children of how to relate to God. Friendship with Jesus. It was mind-blowing for these disciples. We need to remember how crazy a concept this is. You see, you venture into other religions, you venture into other philosophies, and this very idea is unthinkable. And yet for us, it is the foundation of our lives, true friendship with God. But the other thing we need to realize here is that their friendship with God was about to change. They're gathered around the physical person of Jesus. So when Jesus says, remain in me, you're my friends, they're thinking, let's hang around with Jesus. They're thinking about proximity. They're thinking about closeness. They're thinking about the times, like John articulates, where he laid his head on Jesus' chest. They're thinking about times of walking with him when he has healed people. I want to be there. I want to be in the midst. I want to see what he's doing. They're thinking of times when he's taught, when he's rebuked the Pharisees. I want to remain in Jesus. I need to be near him. I want to do the things he's doing. I want to be involved in what he's doing. But he's going to go away. He's going to die. How do they remain in him then? Well, I'll let Rich, Rich answer that question next week. Because fundamentally what Rich is preaching on, I'll give a little bit of spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. The advocate, the empowerer, the mobilizer, the comforter. His spirit. So the friendship that they know, we can think, wow, they were so close to Jesus. Of course they remained in him. But they would look at us and go, you have the spirit of Jesus within you. You have the spirit of God within you. So when we talk about deeply personal, deeply relational, you can't get closer than that. That we are in Christ and Christ is in us. That he is indwelt in us by his Holy Spirit. And why would he do that other than this? He wants a deep and personal relationship with every single person in this room, with every single person watching online. He wants to know you and he wants you to know him. So what do we learn about remaining? What does it mean? Remaining in God, remaining in his love is about understanding that our relationship with God is deeply personal. It is a friendship. He wants to share things with you and he wants us to share things with him on a minute by minute basis. If I could track my relationship with God over the 40, 30 odd years of knowing him, I think I could say it's about deeper friendship with him. By the grace of God, I can say that. Being more open about my failings with him. 
being more aware of who he is, being able to listen to him and hear him, being able to come to the word not as a religious exercise, but as a relational activity of engaging with a real God who wants to know me. And this is not, this is not boasting. This is just the trajectory that God puts us on as believers. Because if you're called by him, if you're in Christ, maybe there's ups and downs, but essentially God is doing this. I want to know you and I want you to know me. I want you to walk more closely with me and me with you. What's the point? Where does this all lead? Why remain? Why does he say that? He's very explicit. And I'm going to explain this in a particular way. Right. I need 11 people again, but I need to choose them. I need your hand up because I'm going to choose the 11. Okay. So if you'd like to be chosen as one of the 11, you can put, it doesn't have to be the ones before. Eliza, I choose you. Annie, I choose you. Oh, should I choose Kezia? Yeah, Kezia, we'll have you. Uh, Malachi, yeah, you. Come and take a seat again. Anyone else wants to be chosen? I guess I have to choose my own daughters, Elsie and Lily. Isabel, Grace, hmm? no, hmm? no, all right. <laughs> Amy, Andy, come on then. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I need to choose uh, three. Oh, Sam? No, no, you don't want to be one of my disciples. Yes, Alex, get in there, my son. Go on. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Two more. Uh, uh, Rachel, yeah, Rachel, I'll choose you. And Barney, would you like to come? Well done. Come on, then. Now. I'm going to read this. So you guys, <clears throat> I'm Jesus, you're the disciples. You, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I chose you to bear fruit. What's the point of all this? What's the point of remaining? Why did Jesus choose us? Ephesians 1 says this. He's called us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. You see, if you're sitting in one of these seats and you know Jesus, before the world was created, he chose you to be righteous, to be holy. But we can take this passage as well, as well and say he chose you to bear fruit. He's chose, I've chosen you to bear fruit. I've appointed you to bear fruit. There was purpose. God wants Fruit. Now, what is this fruit? I'm just trying to wonder how long to keep them sitting here. What do you reckon? Uh, what should we do? I think you can go and sit back down now. Thank you very much. I chose you. You're still chosen. Please go and take a seat. Thank you very much. Excellent choosingness and appointedness. I've chosen them. And that specificity is the same for you. Do you notice I just about called them all by name? <laughs> there was a few pauses. God calls us by name. Do you know something? We, we can sometimes think God chooses like this. Oh, oh yeah, I'll have Ben if I have to. I'll be back if, if I have to have him. It's not like that. God freely chooses and calls us by name in order that we might be fruitful. You see, we can be... We can be concerned sometimes about our usefulness, our fruitfulness. 
But when that happens, we need to come back to this and say, God appointed us to bear fruit. See, the, the, the vine of Israel was not producing fruit. So God brought the true vine, his son. He will produce fruit. And he's chosen you and we will produce fruit. What is this fruit? Well, I'll be honest with you. Lots of people have debated lots of pages of commentaries about what this fruit is. Okay? I'll give you my version. <laughs> it possibly hints at morality, gifts of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit. It possibly hints at others coming to know him, the fruits of evangelistic endeavors, if you like. But it seems, in a typical John way, there's something circular about what he's saying, the way he communicates what Jesus has said. If you go into 1 John, it's similar. There's this circular nature. The fruit is a life lived remaining in Jesus that glorifies him and allows his love to go out further. If, I, if I'm going to pin it down to something, it's the prevalence of God's love in the world. The expansion of his love going out and having the impact that it does. God has appointed us to bear fruit. What's that fruit? It's the fruit of love. And that may look like a life lived in a holy way. It may look like others coming to know God. But essentially, it's remaining in God's love that allows us to obey his commands, to love one another, and that love getting passed on to other people. And they come into this circle, this remaining, this love that God has. Okay, I've got one more point to make. And that's about pruning. Pruning is very important if you're a vine dresser. If you're a gardener trying to get grapes. What happens when life's challenges and difficulties and barriers and hardships interrupt this remaining? What happens when the love of God does not seem as apparent as it did before? What happens if you're in the midst of a war, still following Jesus obediently, but your life is at threat and you have no food? You're unable to protect your own family. What are we to conclude? Maybe we're not remaining in him. Maybe he doesn't actually love us. Maybe we're not chosen. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe I've not followed Jesus well enough and so he's brought these things to me. Now for a second, I'd like to use your imagination. If you're under the age of 15, this is going to be a lot easier because your imagination still works. I'd like you to imagine that you are a branch on a vine. If it helps you to stand up and sway, feel free, that's not actually essential. But imagine you're a branch on the vine. And this year you bore much fruit. You were an excellent fruity branch. Lots of juicy grapes you produced. And then suddenly, right in your midriff, secateurs separate you in half. 
You're a branch, not a human, okay? Imagination, otherwise it's very grisly, this image. It does not feel pleasant. It does not feel good. It does not feel positive. You'll be questioning, what on earth does the gardener, the vine dresser, think he's doing? I am a fruitful branch. Why am I being cut down? You could be a little bit annoyed. You could get a little aggressive. But it would be painful. It would hurt. Let's read verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Why does this appear here? Straight after a passage on remaining. Why, why does John join this dialogue together in the upper room? Because he wants them to know they are connected. He wants them to know that tough times are coming. And when they do, they're going to have a choice. When tough times come into your life, you're going to have a choice. When tough times have been in life, you've had choices. We have choices to make when that happens. Are we going to allow ourselves to be pruned and produce more fruit and continue remaining in the vine? Or are we going to draw a different conclusion about God's plans, about his goodness, about his love, and risk perhaps temporarily cutting ourselves off from the vine. Maybe you're sitting in this room right now and you can identify with that feeling of being cut, of being severed, of being damaged. And you think, well, God, what's it all about? I don't tend to understand the depth of that. I don't intend to understand the complexity of that. But I do know this, there is a choice for you. There's an opportunity for you to increase your fruitfulness in that moment. And these disciples are going to have a choice shortly. Jesus will be taken away from them. What are they going to choose? They're going to be pruned. What are they going to choose? This message, this encouragement to remain is essential for us. It's not a pep talk. We're not in a football match, my friends. This is life and death. This is all. This is everything. Living for him 
Remaining in him is so essential for this city, for this world, for this church, for you. I just want to ask you a few questions. Is this the day when your walk with him changes? Where you move from a general belief in God to an utter reliance upon him? Where you move from treating God as something or someone that is distant to knowing him as the closest friend you have? Is it the day where you move from doubting his love to living in his love? Is it the day when you move from being fruitless or not very fruitful to being fruitful? 